Today's Tech Talks podcast is a recording from our Tech Talks meetup recorded at Tech Hub last Thursday. That's because it's a bank holiday weekend here in the UK, well, except for Scotland. So if you're back in work, sorry about that. We've all got a day off and we thought it would be a great opportunity to show you what we were up to last week. And that was inviting a panel of guests who've been on the podcast before to come and talk to us about culture in front of an audience. About 90 people showed up. There's a bit of interaction from the audience. We tried to capture the conversation as best as we can for an amateur podcast. I hope it's an interesting listen. We'll be back with our normal show on Thursday. Anyway, my name's David Savage and I'm the host of Tech Talks, your twice weekly podcast that discusses the challenges and issues facing the tech sector. So if you want to tune into interviews from some of the leading figures across the industry, Industry, or if you just want to find out a little bit more about tech, this is the podcast for you. No, thanks for coming along. If you're not familiar with uh, Tech Talks, it's a twice weekly podcast that's been running for four years now. Uh, we've published 228 episodes. Each of the three people to my right have been on that podcast. And every 20, 25 episodes or so, we like to break out of just a one-on-one conversation or a studio, actually not a studio because we can't afford a studio, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and we like to get in front of an audience, bring the community together, uh, and anyone who likes listening to the show or has spotted it, come along, chat to each other, share a bit of insight. The whole point behind this podcast was that people who work in technology can talk to each other and share a bit of insight without fear of competition, investors, etc., and all the usual things that stop people sharing stuff at shows. So... Tonight's talk is all about culture. We're not going to come out to the audience and get you to um, ask questions, but Jack, very sorry to do this to you, but Jack is your voice for the night, my co-host, and he will be monitoring Twitter. So we would love it if you got your phones out and as the conversation was going on, use the hashtag TechTalksLive to contribute, ask questions, and if anything interesting pops up on that feed, Jack will grab this mic off me. Unfortunately, we only have one mic. Um, The other one's not working, sorry. Uh, But Jack will grab the mic off me and input that into the conversation. But hopefully it's entertaining. It's gonna be short, 40 minutes long, and then there's pizza, there's mountains of pizza and beer, so we'd love it if you stayed and chat. But before we get into the first question, it would be great if you guys could very quickly Introduce who you are, just in case they haven't heard the episode of the podcast that you were on, starting with Julie. Hi, my name is Julie. Um, I'm a principal, principal consultant at ThoughtWorks, primarily working in the product and design space. Um, my name is Anas. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pathwork, and we are a digital platform that connects um, healthcare workers to shifts in NHS hospitals and helping reducing agency spend um, and improving the staffing levels in our hospitals. Hi, I'm Jonathan Lister-Parsons. I'm the CTO at Pensionbee. We help people to bring together all their old pensions from their old jobs into a single online plan. Cool. Thank you. So look, we'll, we'll dive in because we've got, as I said, we've got 40 minutes for this. Um, first of all, we're sat in central London, but tech's obviously this big global thing. Um, what thing. are the pros? Thing, yeah, <laughs> articulate. What are the pros and cons of building a business in London today? Um, I think, Anas, that I'll start with you because you're kind of constrained. You have to build your business in London, and I kind of wonder whether you would have done that if you didn't have to working in healthcare. Maybe I've got that slightly wrong. Um, you might have gotten that wrong a little bit because there's an NHS hospital everywhere in the UK, 
Um, but there's many reasons why I'd be in London. Um, starting with talent, um, it is a magnet for uh, diverse backgrounds and very talented people. Um, and it's much easier to find these talented people in London. It's also um, kind of the elephant in the room, source of funding. Most of the VCs are London-based, so for a lot of startups, for easier access for funding, London will be the place. Um, and actually, to a certain extent, the NHS, even though the NHS is distributed, um, decision-making and the center is based in London with the Department of Health and NHSI. Um, but I think as much as there's a lot of advantages to building tech in London, um, and for many more reasons I haven't mentioned, of course comes with its own issues. The first one is obviously cost. Um, whether it's cost of space, cost of talent, again. Um, and then there's also the fact that it's just a big city, and often moving around a big city and getting things done in a big city can have its own challenges. That's our experience so far. But we still love it, and it, it, it's still the place where we, our headquarters are. We do have a distributed team around the country, which is a big point, and a big, big element to, I think, big tech in the UK and anywhere in the world, really, and being comfortable with distribution of your teams. But there's many reasons why we would remain a London-based startup, and we love it for that reason. When I say that you kind of have to be in London, I kind of say that from the point of view that most NHS trusts and PCTs, they're, they're based in London. I suppose the market is yeah. there for you. It's closer. The biggest, yeah. Uh, and although you've got a distributed team, I mean, how, how do you make the choices in a, in a modern tech business of actually which roles? Because it always seems to be the case that software development, you can offshore, you can kind of push that out, or those harder to find skill sets, you just have to accept that they're going to be elsewhere. But which roles really have to be close to your customer base? Um, I mean, Pension B, you've grown quite quickly over the last year. How have, you, how have you made the choices of who's in the office, who's not in the office, how you, how you kind of structure the company as it, as it grows? That's a really good question. I, I mean, I think I would start by saying that, you know, we're in London because uh, it's where, it, you know, it's free movement of people. It's where people have converged to from countries all over the world. And, you know, to the talent point, um, it's where we feel like we're going to form the best team but we mainly, I mean, there are about five exceptions, um, but we mainly have everybody in the same office. Uh, so we have a fairly inflexible remote working policy, although we do have people in Argentina, Singapore, Miami, Manchester, Glasgow. But if you're based in London, then we basically expect you to come into the office most of the time. And I know that's a fairly, you know, not necessarily a, a very woke thing to say. But, <laughs> Welcome um, to a not very woke podcast. <laughs> but I think that, uh, you know, we've long said that, the, the, you know, it's, it's in the room where the magic happens. Mm. And we've got a lot of people who are not doing technology jobs. They're doing things that really benefit from being amongst, you know, amongst their peers. So they can lean over and tap people and have a conversation and kind of take things into a meeting room if they need to. So I think... I don't think that's necessarily normal, um, but I think for us that's what works. Yeah. And I think as we've grown, the the decisions that we've made about where to put people have kind of been based around um, can we fit any more people into that square ten meters? Uh, no, we can't. It's time to get a new office, and less about you know let's embrace the kind of the global talent pool. But you know think, things can change. I just wanted to build on that point about um, people being in the same room where the magic happens. So certainly what we're facing as a, we're a technology consultancy, um, we're all for flexible working, but particularly when you're doing product development and innovation with a client, it's really important to be able to be in the room 
and you know eyeball each other and, and have those discussions. And what we're finding as a really big challenge, um, particularly when we're recruiting um, more millennial folks, is how do we? Because I'm clearly not. Um, how do we? How do we send that message across? And how do we get people engaged? Because coming into work, I'm not sure how, how you've responded to this, but you know, nine to five in an office where we can't have dogs in our office. What? Is, I know, yeah. I know. Is not really, it's not seen as cool. So that is something that we're certainly facing as, as it's- Is having dogs in an office cool? Uh, yeah, it's oh, very okay. cool. It actually lowers, you know, um, blood pressure and stuff. So, I mean, I'm not sure not how you're dealing with that. Dogs. <laughs> or allergic. <laughs> or allergic. Yeah. I think it's, it's quite interesting because I actually thought this is gonna be more common to have distributed working in tech companies. Um, but it is a tough balance. So I, I started off in my first year of founding uh, Patchwork. I was very much so everyone has to be in the office. I'm a, I was a strong believer in the cross-pollination that comes from um, working in the same space. And I still believe in that to a certain extent. Um, but now we have a planned time to be in the office together. So we deliberately try and be in the office for cycle plannings. We do that every two weeks. Um, when the implementation operational teams meet meet up uh, at least once a week or sometimes every every few weeks we have a larger company-wide meetings and everyone's around for that reason. But then we start appreciating the benefits of remote working. And a lot of it is not about, I mean, there's obvious one, which is cost of space, uh, but actually quite a lot of it is morale. Because especially in a city like London, where you could easily spend about an hour and a half each way commuting, by the time we get to the office, you're just fed up by the day already. Mm. Um, we found out that our team's actually more productive, and they actually end up putting in more hours before you even ask them to do so, because they're working more remotely. But it's a tough balance, I completely mm. agree, because you, you are, it is, it, it's a deliberate um, trade-off you're doing every time you make a decision to have a remote worker versus an office worker, and it's about trying to find the right balance. But there is, I think, space for both. Jack, you've got something from social. No, I don't. I just had a oh, question. Oh, you, you went in my ear. Yeah, no, I have a question from me. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and j just on London, I mean, we know that like places like Cambridge and Belfast are really starting to come into their own with their special technologies. And Amsterdam has the Silicon, Silicon Canals. Berlin's just a huge tech hub. How long is it before London falls out of fashion a bit? You know, we're already a less fashionable city than we were a year ago because of Boris and Brexit. So. <laughs> When, when, well, I mean, when do you guys think that you might even consider moving out of London? Not while the VCs are here. Not while the VCs. <laughs> Look at that, stumped them all. I don't want to leave. <laughs> um, all right. So, I mean, we serve the NHS. So our main market is the NHS. So for for the longest time, it's going to remain the UK and it's going to remain London. Of course, we do. We are looking to working with other healthcare economies. So Europe and North America will be the next natural step for us. Um, but so long we're doing business in the UK and the business in the UK is our primarily main market, I think we'll remain in London. Um, I still think there is more to being, it's the same question people ask, when is Silicon Valley ever gonna be displaced? <laughs> there, there's, there's certain things that will take decades to build. There's a certain culture of um, entrepreneurship, uh, whether it's the infrastructure for funding, for talent, um, for growing businesses, um, for, for incentives from, 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 a, from, a, from a policy point of view, that will take a while. I know Berlin obviously is, is the obvious next one um, in, in Europe and Amsterdam, as you said. Um, and I think you will always have these roles. So going back to the obvious market to compare to the North American market, there's many other small Silicon Valley popping up. Mm -hmm. You've got Vancouver, you've got New York, um, 
Silicon Valley is always going to be Silicon Valley. And I think mm. it doesn't have to be one city over the other. It's never going to be, well, here we go, London's handing the baton to Berlin. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I think, Brexit or not, London will maintain a position in the tech market in Europe, in my opinion. <laughs> Your fingers crossed there, Julie. <laughs> uh, so as a pension company, uh, we are very UK-focused because every company, every country has a different pension system. So you know, what goes on in the UK system doesn't necessarily go on anywhere else. So that mindset does kind of carry over into where we think about where our, our offices are going to be. But I just, I just want to put it out there for other cities in, the, in England and in the UK. So we could have an office in Manchester and that would be a perfectly credible thing to do. Or have an office in you know, Dudley or have an office in I know, North, Northampton because there's plenty of people there who can contribute to modern fintech services. You don't have to be a Londoner in order to, you know, to contribute. And neither do you have to move to Berlin or move to Amsterdam. So I think actually, you know, that whole thing about the rising tide lifting all boats, I think if companies are being successful in their headquarters in London because of all of the reasons we've just articulated, then pushing some of that out to the, you know, other cities and, and regions of the UK is gonna be a good thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, now we're woke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to move it on a little bit. A lot of company culture comes from the leader, but there are some unique challenges that face a founder, a co-founder of a tech business. And I'm going to come to Anas on this because one of my favorite things to happen on the podcast in the last three or four months was when you came on the podcast and I said, how, you know, how do you, how do you get out of your headspace? And you said, oh, well, I'm an A&E doctor. And at the weekends, I go do A&E shifts because that's relaxing. Um, we had a good laugh which, about yeah. that. Like, we de-stress by watching cricket at the weekend and ask goes and saves lives. Um, just kind of talk us through that headspace and, and, and why that is relaxing and what the challenges are when you found a business. You're such an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> so not, by the way. But so, so, so. What I really meant by that is it gives me mindfulness. It sets me in the now and then, because being a doctor in A&E, you must be in the now and then. You cannot be seeing a patient, examining a patient, and thinking about that sales deal you won or did not win yesterday. So it allows me to shut down that monkey brain to focus on the now and then. It is still a tough job. Surprisingly, not as tough as running a business, but it's still tough. Um, but for me, it's about mindfulness and being in the moment, and, and, and hence why I, I did it for a while, and I do it on occasions and weekends. Um, but going back to, I think, the stresses of founder, and I think the, the, the hardest thing that a lot of us don't appreciate um, as we're founding businesses is how fast your role changes, um, especially if you're moving at warp speed. So you know, most founders will tell you they start off as being the jack of all trades. Your marketing, your product, your sales, your, your everything. And then slowly you start evolving into becoming um, the delegator of tasks. And quite quickly you become a delegator of decision making. Yeah. And that's when it becomes really difficult to move on from that point. So I think the biggest challenge of, of, of founding a business is not the obvious ones of finding funding and building the right teams. These are all very difficult. But on a personal level for the founder, it's appreciating that your role will evolve quite quickly um, and sometimes not to the places you want it to go because there's a reason why you chose to be a founder, you love rolling up your sleeves and doing things. And the minute you stop being the doer and the coach for the doer, the minute you stop being the football player but the coach for the other football players, that's when you have a bit of an identity crisis to a certain extent and you have to figure out what's your role as a founder as the company evolves. And I think that was probably, when I speak to my co-founder a lot about it all the time, is how do we reflect on the evolution of our role and have we even anticipated that or did you just 
sleepwalking to it. And mm. I think that's that's a tough one for my memory. I mean, Jonathan, you're you're a CTO, but your role has grown with the business and changed. How have you found that transition? Yeah, so I was also there with the CEO when we co-founded the business, and my role was 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 actually very concrete. My role was okay. You're writing the code, so <laughs> that isn't really. I mean, I still do write code, uh, which is nice, but I've definitely seen an evolution from worrying about you know, the immediate day-to-day of getting the next iteration of the product out, getting testing things, making sure that the technology scales, worrying about security and all the stuff you do in the early days, to now building a team of people who can do all of those things without my input on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, one of the, so to just to provide a little bit of context, one of the decisions that we took was to build our technology team on, on juniors. So everybody who's in our technology team, it's their first job in tech. And that requires a certain amount of coaching and, and nurturing that you don't necessarily have if you're bringing in people who are more senior. But you know, now we're, we've been in the market for a few years, so we've, we've got people with nearly four years of experience and, and sort of down three to six months, every checkpoint down to, to somebody who started training two weeks ago. And they're now you know, much more of a kind of self-sustaining unit of people. You then also got massive growth on the other side of the company. So more than half of our staff are in customer success. So what's the CTO doing about customer success? You know, what am I thinking about? But I think I take the role as as you know manager of the company also very seriously. And it's it, you know anything is is very interesting if it's contributing towards the success or not of the company. So I think my role you know kind of becomes um, has become very varied, but incredibly people focused in a way that it, it didn't used to be. What happened to that group of hires eventually? Like, I assume you hired them on potential. Did they stay in their roles? Did they flourish and move into something else? What was their general progression like the, from day one the on? The technology hires or the, the customer success hires? The technology one, sorry. Well, we just hired them every three to six months. Um, so they've all stayed as technologists, but we've absorbed people from customer success. Roughly half the teams come out of customer success and, and transitioned into technology. Mm. And nice. they stayed there too. Bit of freedom of movement internally mm. then. Ish. Yeah, thumbs up. What about um, everyone can't be a successful founder? Oh. Sorry, and look. Thanks. This, is, this isn't a dig at you. You kind of know this is coming. Our company yet. <laughs> no, but there is a, an extraordinary amount of pressure on everyone to have this mission and purpose and to be the next unicorn. And we can't all be that. And sometimes you start a, fa- you start a tech business and you fail. And then what? There's a lot of people who keep seemingly trying to, to kind of go again and again. But Julie, you've got perspective yeah. on it and you've gone back into large corporates with the likes of Booper, but then ThoughtWorks and tried to find your role and fitting into their culture when you wanted to run your own business. How's that transition been? It, it's actually really hard. Um, so I founded my own business in 2012 and um, it didn't last very long. It was two years of... I mean, I would say it's not hell, but it was really hard <laughs> because, you know, you come out the t- in 2012 and certainly in Australia, being in a startup was really new, was very cool. And you read all of these success stories. Like, of course, I'm going to be successful. Like, I've got, you know, all the attributes, you know, you've got this really cool. Everyone's telling you that your product's really cool. Um, and then eventually I couldn't get product market fit. And I had to, you know closed the business and for me personally it was my journey as 
as a founder and a leader was more around you know ego and swallowing that and saying actually it didn't work I need to move on what is my next step and that took me quite a while to to get over because you know you're you're technically a failure and it's actually not as cool when people say fail fast well it still hurts so um, going into my decision to go into corporate was well I need to feel and have that um, sense of I'm still autonomous I have you know a team that I can work with and I still feel like I'm building something mm. and I was lucky enough to get that within Bupa and I do that with my clients now at ThoughtWorks um, so I'm quite quite lucky in that sense but what we see what I see personally now is when I'm working with scale-ups it's that wonderful charismatic founder that we find the hardest to coach because their company is scaling quite fast and they need to be a different leader and the leader that they want to be is I know everything about everyone everyone loves me I make every every decision but it's like how do you coaching them to let go of the reins a little bit is what we're is the biggest challenge that I I see. Just, you're smiling. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> they can dig at me right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the question again? Because that was that was really interesting. I just thought about the question. What was the question? Oh, it was more. It was more around how you know not everyone can be a success, and if you're not a success, how do you then find your place in someone's culture? So I'm oh, millennial. So so so, so uh, it's really interesting because I think I think both corporates and startups. Um, the ones who are quite stand out to me are the ones who are able to attract founder type personalities. Mm. Because to me, founders don't always have to be founders of businesses. Um, mm. There's a certain set of personalities that come, or personality traits that come in a founder that doesn't always necessarily become a founder. Um, but companies, large or small, could really benefit from these personalities. And these are the ones who are able to think outside the box, are able to work for a mission or for a goal beyond the nine to five hours. The ones who are more resourceful can, can kind of have a sense of magnetism around them and attract talent to come and join the same company. These kind of personalities um, need to be harnessed in larger corporations. So someone like yourself um, would be would be perfect for an environment with a small or large organization that would benefit from a founder type personalities. And I think it's a shame that most founder type personalities, I stop saying that phrase again now, uh, end up escaping um, their companies to build businesses because they couldn't find any other way to be you know, the best version of themselves, but by leaving and founding businesses. We need them, we need them to do some of that, otherwise we'll lose all the founders, but it'll be really important to find a way to get um, founders um, of businesses, successfully or not, to be able to find their way back to um, the working world um, in a way that they can still thrive the way they did as founders. And I think it's a really tough one. Mm. You mentioned there about the charisma of the founder kind of cajoling people, building those teams. Mm. Um, I thought, Whilst everyone kind of got fixated when we, when Fire Festival, uh, the documentary on Netflix, they got fixated with the with the ills of the marketing aspect and uh, uh, that aspect of social social media. One of the interesting pieces, I was having a conversation with someone where they were talking about the fact that what Billy did brilliantly well was he convinced people to mm. buy into this mission and purpose. And he actually said, look in the mirror, and there's a lot of qualities there that technology founders and founders of businesses need to have, where the entire world tells them that something's going to fail, but they go, no, 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 I can make a success of this, despite what you all think. Yeah. Mission and purpose are incredibly powerful forces in the tech space. Yeah. But we never seem to kind of discuss the slightly darker side, where it's getting people to work 60 plus hours a week, and at that 
coalface when you're starting a business. You go, well, yeah, but you need that. You need everyone to roll up their sleeves. When does that then trip over into being something that's maybe negative and starts tearing down the culture that you're building? If it does, you're looking at me quizzically, Jonathan. I know you have a great culture, so uh, in terms of your beekeepers and so forth. But do you think mission and purpose is always positive? Yeah, I was looking at you quizzically. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's because you're so charismatic. <laughs> that's one that's way a lie. It. No. It's certainly one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting one because, I mean, it kind of suck if mission and purpose, you know, are a bad thing. But I guess that's because when I think about it, I think about, you know, you'd be mad to have a mission and purpose that weren't inherently good. But I guess your fire example is, of course, like, you know, the mission and purpose there were not necessarily towards a, a beneficial end. Um, so I think, I think I'll just answer it, you know, the way, the way that I believe. So I think mission and purpose are always a good thing, as long as you define your mission and purpose in a way that actually makes sense as a mission and as a purpose. You know, because we often get the question like, what, what gets people out of bed in the morning? You know, you're a pension company, why do people want to come work for you? But we don't, we don't motivate people by saying, oh, you know, come and do some stuff in pensions. We say, we want people, we want to live in a world where people have a happy retirement. Mm. You know, that's the vision. And the thing that we've chosen to do about that right now is make pensions simple and engaging. I should be in the marketing team. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, that's, you know, that's the vision and that's, that's the mission right there. But that's very easy to sort of explain to People, but you don't really have to explain it because you know people just go, oh yeah, sure, right, that makes sense. Your mission is really who you are, isn't it? Living and breathing it, sort of thing, you know, for yeah. the pensions and stuff. It, yeah, it so, makes sense. It wouldn't make any sense if that failed and everyone lost sight of that. I guess you know, everyone <laughs> buys into that immediately. Yeah, and I think it's very, it's probably very important for my kind of mental sanity to not admit that there are missions and purposes that aren't like good. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, just to build on yeah. one thing and then. I will pass it to you, absolutely. Um, I've seen some early stats from the Harvey Nash Technology Survey, which is coming out in a couple of months. Spoilers, if you haven't done the Harvey Nash Technology Survey yet, do it, it'd be good. Um, but there's some interesting stats around mental health in there, again. And we know that building technology companies is incredibly stressful. Over half of the people in the technology industry, it seems, believe that their mental health has been compromised by their role. And yet only one quarter of their businesses are actually doing anything <laughs> to monitor mental health. And I was doing an event during London Tech Week uh, where we got onto a conversation about mental, uh, mental health first aiders. And I have to be perfectly honest, I'd never even heard of the phrase before this conversation. Turns out Mexico have a, have a ratio where you have to have a certain number of mental health first aiders in your business looking after your staff. We don't. So why is that? Why are we not paying more attention to the health of our staff as well? The mental health rather than the physical well-being. Sorry, I know you wanted to make a point. So curveball there, build that into whatever you were going to say. <laughs> no pressure. Um, no, well, prior to working at ThoughtWorks, I worked for VUPA, which was a health and care organisation, so we were very heavy on um, mental health. And we had wellness days, and we also had a um, mental health first aider for each department. And that's regardless if you're in tech or not in tech. But I think, as just being humans, you know, being able to eyeball, like again, I know I'm a big advocate for working in teams, even if it's scheduled core hours when you're seeing each other, but where we naturally need to survive is interaction with each other, and that is 
over and above <coughs> just emailing or WhatsApping. We need to see and be in the same room. So I have found in the past, and I continue to see it today, just being in the same vicinity as the team and picking up on facial cues and saying, oh, actually, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have known that if I was on a Zoom, but I'm in the room with you and I can sense there's something up, so are you okay? Mm. So I'm a, big, I'm a big advocate for being just around people because I think that as you know, human beings, we, we need that connection and it's really important for mental health. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I reflect on a lot about recruitment and attracting talent um, to, to, to startups is often thinking of the mission and the vision as the reason why they come to you, um, but thinking of culture as the reason why they decide to stay. Because the mission and the vision might remain uh, a powerful magnet if, if, if the environment they're in is not the place they want to be in and they're not thriving and they will leave. Um, going to mental health, I think this is a really tough one to get right because Often, most companies, small or big, think of it as a top-down approach um, and think about policies you draft and, and, and having people trained in mental health. But really, um, it comes down to making sure everyone in the company is looking after each other. And I know it's, it's a cheesy thing to say, but it's ultimately about ensuring that your people are looking after each other even when you're not around. So often it's the small things where one of your senior engineers comes to you and says, by the way, you know, X, Y, and Z has been working all weekend, let's give them a couple of days off. It's them looking after each other that way rather than you having to wait for things to go wrong and you, you know, as, as a manager, have to jump in and intervene. Um, it comes in with the small things of providing people the space to, to recover from um, a busy sprint or um, a really uh, a busy month in whatever they're doing but also space for them to speak up. And I think it comes down to the interpersonal relationships, the one-on-one -on -one relationships between your direct line manager, between your colleagues, and as well as, as the senior managers. And I think it's, it's a really tough one to get because startups tend to work in the hardest environments compared to um, the traditional businesses who probably have the space and the resources to provide some, some additional support that small startups can't. So it really comes down to the personal relationships and the culture rather than trying to create structures that most startups can never achieve. Um, okay, so I just want to like, sort of give you an anecdote and then, and then I guess make a point. So it was Mental Health Awareness Week not that long ago, I guess March, April? Mm -hmm. Not quite. June or May. So it was, it was good contribution. A few months ago. And, um, it was this year. We, we have a weekly show and tell where the whole company gets together in a room much like this and uh, we'd have a table at the front. And our newly appointed head of talent who had come from customer success. Uh, she'd been researching a lot of stuff around mental health and sort of did a takeover of the show and tell and did Mental Health Awareness Week show and tell. And almost out of nowhere, she had teed up a series of people in the company, and it was entirely voluntary, to tell their own story of uh, struggles with mental health. And it was, I mean, it was just incredibly emotional. You know, I'm sitting there at the front, going, oh, cry, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, so she started it off, and she told her story of, you know, struggling with mental health, and, and people just kind of coming up and telling stories that you thought, give me a comment. You know, what are you doing? This is... But, but the point was that they felt comfortable doing that. So that was kind of an amazing uh, reflection that the culture that we, you know, tried very hard to build was, was really meaningful for people. So the, the point that I want to make in terms of, of, of how do you do, 
do mental health. I think you do have to find ways to systematize it. Otherwise, it ends up being, you know, and I don't want to, you know, take away from your point. It does end up being, oh, tap on the shoulder. Somebody's having a bad, <coughs> having a bad week. Why don't you let them go home early, kind of thing? So we build everything around happiness, and we have happiness managers. So it's the first thing that you get when you join is you know who your happiness manager is. Like you know know about that before you join, and you have six to eight. Six to eight weeks between meetings with your happiness manager, and they sit down and they, and they say, "How are you feeling?" And the whole dynamic of that conversation is, "What can the company be better doing for you, so that you feel good about yourself and about your work?" And that's very, very different from meetings with managers that are normally the way around, where you're saying, "What are you doing for the company, and how well are you doing it?" Which completely shuts down all sorts of conversations. And I think that if you just switch things around and try and build a really supportive culture for people. It doesn't have to be on happiness, you know, it can be on whatever thing works for you. Then I think that's a really good way, a really good point to start from. You, know, you switch the focus and then look for processes that can embed that within the teams. We've got three. We've got some questions from the floor. We've got, we're, we're, I'll do it chronologically. So first question from Hank Hung. Sorry if I've mispronounced your surname, Hank. Um, and this follows on from uh, uh, NASA's decompressing uh, anecdote um, of working in A&E shifts, which is just the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, the other, everyone else on the panel, how do, how do we decompress? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're on a podcast. That's not going to work. <laughs> Um, I'm a bit boring. I, I actually have uh, a very structured way of decompressing, which oh, is wow. boring. So I make sure that I'm always, you know, I have time in the morning to meditate, journal, oh. exercise. Um, and I, I, I never miss a day because I've just, it makes me feel so good that I know that it's boring, but you know what? A, glass, a bottle of wine just doesn't do it like a, a 20 minute meditation does. So that's how I decompress. I'm a lot of self-care. Structured decompression. Yes. Yeah. Before I pass this on, can I just say I don't just do any. I know. <laughs> You're going from here to some buzz, right? Straight in. I do a long hike. It's okay. It's okay. I do Own climbing once in a while. Too late for that now. I don't do any. Too Own late. It. Too late. Own it. It does. Own it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I actually I go with the morning ritual. I always like to have personal time before I before I go to work. Um, so I read or I like learning Japanese that's that's nothing like software development so mm. I recommend that Konnichiwa Konnichiwa uh, one of my favourite times of the week normally is listening oh, to no five live sports you. No, no say, you. Newcastle United are rubbish now so <laughs> that doesn't work um, but I cook because it forces you to slow down yeah, at the end of a busy day cook, well, what about you well, at the moment, it's the Ashes and Arsenal. That's about it. Fair enough. But, you know. Next question. Yes. This next question is from Celine Prince. Again, sorry if I've mispronounced your surname, Celine. Um, and this one, I believe, is directly for Jonathan. How did it work out hiring juniors? Did they all become amazing engineers? Mm. And not. Thank you, Celine, for putting me on the spot like that. Uh, so did they... They well, Some of them, like I said, one person's been training for two weeks. So we'll see. I, mean, <laughs> I hope so. But the two that have the most experience, you know, they've stayed with the company because they've been able to grow in that. I don't mean because we would have kicked them out otherwise. I mean because it's been a satisfying journey for them. And they've grown in their skills and, you know, I trust them with a lot and I feel really good about that. And there's, there's a couple more just with a, maybe six months less experience and they, they do some really good work as well. So, so far, the experiment's working well, but you know we are only sort of three and a half to four years into that, um, 
but I am constantly concerned that this particular strategy is a terrible idea. Time will tell, right? But so far, so good. Touch on the wood. One more. Uh, one more question from the wonderful Rosalind Clift. Uh, how, I say that because she's my girlfriend. Hello. Um, how did it work? Oh no, sorry. How do you maintain your culture with remote workers slash consultants on site? So how do you ensure they keep up the culture? Um, so start with contractors. Mm -hmm. We ne never treat contractors as contractors. Nice. Day one, you're part of the team. Um, you're part of the same meetings. You're on Perkbox. We're trying to do it as much as, as far as we can take it before IR35 comes after us. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing we do. The second thing is, um, like I said, we, we, we deliberately plan our get-togethers. Small teams or big teams. So the engineering teams and, and, and the design team meet up every two weeks for a full two days. Um, they stay overnight and they socialize, they have dinner together and spend two days just planning for the next cycle and they're off for two weeks. The company meets as a whole, the entire company, every month everyone in the same room and then we go out and socialize. So it's deliberate planning for socializing and keeping the culture. Um, and we still do our regular calls and regular meetings and, and a lot of us um, end up becoming neighbors recently, which I'm not going to get into. Yeah, right hmm. <laughs> cool. yeah. So um, for ThoughtWorks don't actually hire contractors, it's only um, consultants that work for the organization for that reason because they want to maintain the culture, but whenever we work with organisations, um, we always consider ourselves as strategic partners, and we create a the project team is a joint project team with people from that organisation and ThoughtWorks, and we give ourselves a, one name. So you know we could be like the purple team or whatever, but there that's we then create our own norms within that team. So we're not a separate entity we're always from the from day dot we're one team working towards these outcomes okay we are five minutes away from our finishing pizza uh, and i don't want the pizza to go cold but one more question um do you value editing and slowing down there's a lot of pressure to grow quickly and the chief advantage that a startup has over a corporate business is that it's agile and it can move quickly and it can scale but i've 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 come to kind of understand a little bit more about editing recently, and it was quite interesting. And I wondered if that was something that you guys had um, actively done within your businesses. Jonathan, probably to start with you. What's editing? Ed slowing down, taking time to necessarily, not just constantly growing, 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 pushing to grow, but slowing down and think. It was put to me as kind of thinking slowly almost, and, and kind of stopping that growth and going, are we making the right decisions? Okay, I mean, that sounds like sort of growing sustainably. I suppose. I mean, I think there are, there's a lot of pressure. Certainly the media portrays a lot of, um, that there is a lot of pressure on companies to grow in a kind of a hyper growth mode. Um, but I think that that's probably something that's pushed by a certain type of investor, pushing a certain type of model about revenue share, uh, about market share in winner takes most markets. How many businesses is that appropriate for? probably not that many and I mean I haven't worked in one um, I mean I think the pension industry is is huge and uh, we do grow very very quickly we do have one of those kind of hockey stick growth curves but it's never felt rushed and I think that you know just all of the management team um, eventually believe in sustainable growth sorry to add some context to this I kind of guess there's a lot of pressure put from the VC community and investors on 
growth. Mm. And, you know, we all celebrate unicorns. And I don't necessarily think that that's the most healthy thing that we could do yet. It is. Unicorns are kind of put on the no, pedestal. No, the most healthy thing we can do is stop saying that we celebrate unicorns. Yeah. Well, yeah. And They're start saying creatures. things like we celebrate, <laughs> you know, that company that became profitable and pays its staff really well and have holidays. Yeah. Just, I don't know, better messaging. So, yeah, I'm not on the fence, clearly. <laughs> we, we need Russ Shaw from Unbound London to stop saying we need the next unicorn now, don't we? We love Russ, but yeah, he's putting pressure on everyone. Um, in terms of editing, it's time to reflect on what you're doing and slow down. Um, I think each founder and each management have their own style of doing it, whatever works for you. Um, me and my co-founder found a way to do it. Um, I don't think he likes something I do. So one of the things I do is, <laughs> We can ask him. He's by the way, he's in the room yeah. right there. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things I do is, on the way back home at 8 or 9 p.m., I start recording a long voice message on the WhatsApp. How's that? Have you ever tried doing one of those? <laughs> yes, I love Where he feels he needs to respond. He's like, oh, I need to respond, but it just, it's just a recording. And I just do a brain dump. But it tends to be one of those that slow down and reflect. That's got one way of reflection. Um, my other thing I do. I've got three. I've got three of them. The second one is Sunday brunches with my senior management, where we just talk about none of what happened last week, nothing what happens about next week. It's all about vision, strategy. Are we on the right path? Are we thinking big picture? Are we, you know, just forget the tunnel vision, just focus on the big picture, and just have a conversation. Nothing about what's happening day to day. So Sunday brunches work. No, definitely, but it works with the senior management. The third one. Is um, make sure you take holidays. So many founders probably are waiting for that deferred gratification one day when you exit, and that's when you relax. Make time for holidays, and and I've gotten better at it in the past year. My co-founder is still not yet, so I'm pushing him to take some holidays. Um, but take holidays. Feels like an attack now. So I, I'll leave him a long WhatsApp message tonight, <laughs> reminding you to take a holiday. But genuinely, because you, uh, we all know founders will never switch off. So holidays does not mean you're switching off, you're on the beach, you're not thinking about the business. Of course you're thinking about the business. But you think about the business the way you need to think. Going back to the editing, you're thinking about the things that are not distracting you every day from that sale, that deal, that, that, that new release that you're going to go out with. You're just thinking about where am I going with this. And the only way you can do it is just leave the country, switch off your phone, and be alone somewhere with your partner, with friends. Whatever you have to do, you will still think about the business, let it happen, but you're doing it in a very different way and a helpful way. So that's my three ways of editing and slowing down when I can. No. Right, I've got two more key messages then between more beer and pizza. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming along. Um, this event has been supported by Nash Tech, who are part of the Harvey Nash Group. They have kindly paid for all of the beer. Well, Andy, has, my MD, has currently paid for the beer, much to his consternation. But they will, I promise, pay for it soon, Andy. Uh, and they've paid for the pizza. They have 2,000 software uh, engineers out in Vietnam. We're the second largest employer and investor in Vietnam. So if you're interested in finding out about Vietnam, it's a very young, highly educated country, come and have a word with me and I can put you in touch with someone at Nash Tech um, and see whether or not there's a conversation that might help your business there. Uh, the second message is entirely self-serving and selfish. Um, for the last six years, or maybe seven, I've supported Action for Children through an event called Bite Night. Um, Harvey Nash have long worked with Bite Night. And in about uh, 16 days, I am running up a mountain in Switzerland, uh, a marathon, 26.2 miles, going six and a half thousand feet uphill, which is six and a half times the height of the Shard in about five and a half hours. So I'm going to die. Please make it back. Please make it back. <laughs> Shut up. Um, 
But on my Twitter handle, uh, which is easy to find through the Tech Talks page, which is uh, tech, double underscore, tech double underscore talks, I should remember that. Uh, I have a Just Giving page. I'd love it if you could support me because it's going to a good cause and I am going to kill myself. But, <laughs> Wait, <what>? um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's not good mental health conversation. Yeah, anyway, um, look. I hope you enjoyed the contributions from our lovely panel. Thank you for coming along. If you want to find out more about them, go to the Tech Talks website, type their names in, Julie Fidel, Anna Snader, and Jonathan Lister-Parsons, and you will be able to listen to their podcasts there and find out more. But apart from that, enjoy beer, enjoy pizza. Please stay and discuss, because there's a huge amount more on, on culture that we haven't touched. And thank you for coming along. <laughs>